0: Hi, everybody, and thanks again for tuning in to the Talk Music Podcast. What a thrill it is for me to do this upcoming podcast, as this guest and the band he is part of will always have a special memory in my life that will remain forever. My association with this group's first album as their producer truly changed my life forever. And so I'm truly honored to welcome Derry Graham from Honeymoon Suite on this week's Talk Music Podcast. And we're going to go deep on the band's long, illustrious history. Their music achievements are truly impressive as they sit amongst the most successful Canadian acts to ever form in this country. With double and triple platinum albums to their credit, along with a remarkable amount of hit songs that have graced our airways for decades, not only here but in the US and other countries as well. I can't wait for this chat to begin, and so it will after a brief clip of a song you may have heard on the radio over the years. Hi and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast. And wow, you know, every time I hear that song, and it's still a lot these days, it puts a smile on my face. You know, New Girl Now is just one of those special songs and you have so many others, of course, that have stood the test of time. And, you know, it still sounds as good today as it did, uh, you know, years ago. And it always will. It's just one of those amazing songs. And you know what? Every time I go up north, I hear it almost every hour still. I think it's the moose when I go up to Algonquin Park. And, you know, other friends of mine tell me, yeah, I hear Honeymoon Suite all the time, maybe more than I did in the 80s. (laughs) What do you say to all that? It's crazy, isn't it? Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you. And wow, thanks for the intro. Don't I feel important?
0: (laughs) Well, you should. (laughs) Well, you know, it's such a pleasure to have you join me. And and, uh, I think maybe a good place to start is to go back uh, when we both met and start from the beginning and work our way up. And you're ready for this. It's four decades. Uh, if you can believe that and i think we still look pretty pretty damn good so <laughs> we we've stood the test of time physically as well here so cuz we're 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 actually staring at each other on this little screen um and we're also looking at each other's man caves which is kind of cool cuz i see a lot of cool guitars there even though i'm a keyboard player i admire them <laughs> anyway you know um I also want to chat later on about your super exciting association with Godin and having your own signature guitar, so we'll definitely jump into that later. Okay, so um, why don't we start briefly and go back to the very beginnings, and uh, I've done my research on this, and you were born in St. Catharines, so why don't you start there? At what age and how did you start with your love of music and playing guitar? How did how did that all start in your, in your early days?
1: Well... My dad was a doctor.
0: Okay. And he
1: loved classical music. He, he was also a piano player. And we had this beautiful grand piano in the house. Nice. Ever since, you know, before I was born. And so he would do his doctor stuff in the day and come home and get his, his drink at night and, and sit down and play Beethoven and Chopin. Wow. Every, almost every night. So that's the first music us four kids all heard every night upstairs when we were going to bed. Yeah. The Beethoven drifting up from the, the living room.
0: Super cool.
1: Yeah, that does have an effect Yep. over and over and over. Every time I hear one of those pieces, it's it's ingrained in my brain because he played all the classics.
0: <laughs> so is classical not not so much uh, other kinds of pop or rock or stuff as, most, as classical? Wow, that's so interesting.
1: Pretty much classical. The big old books, and I still have some of them, you know, from 1930, the old pages. It's pretty cool. That's neat. Uh, of course, all four kids had to take piano lessons. So when I was five, we got forced into that. How long did that last? Did you do, do a couple of years? It was it was rough in the beginning, you know, but I kind of like didn't mind it too much once I figured out where the notes were and stuff. <laughs> but I gotta tell you, you're a keyboard player. I think every kid or every person, you're you're way, way ahead of the first instrument you learn is a piano because you you derive so much from a keyboard, you learn to read music. You learn chords and variations and and different positions, and from there I think you can play any instrument. So the understanding of a keyboard I think is is key. Yeah. Anyways, did that you know took lessons for a number of years, in the whole conservatory thing, and then when I was 11 years old I think I I, I heard um, I heard smoke in the water. Okay. Uh, and walking to a record store one day, <laughs> and uh, I you know rock was was starting to, you know, late sixties, Led Zeppelin Hendrix. Sure. All that. But when I heard Smoke in the Water, that was it. I wanted
0: to play guitar. Got it. So that's when you segued over. Yeah. Okay. So about eleven or so. Okay. Yeah.
1: About eleven, yeah. So I got my mom to buy me a acoustic guitar. My dad said, as long as you keep your piano lessons up, we'll we'll do some guitar lessons. Mm-hmm. Did
0: that ever backfire on him, eh? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I just, I just took to it. I, I loved it, you know. Okay. So you were, you were uh, taking lessons. So you are, you aren't self-taught you, you did take guitar lessons when you were a kid.
1: For, for a few years, just to kind of learn uh, to sight read uh, the music. But, uh, but I had a cool teacher in the beginning. He was like in a local rock band. So he, he wasn't teaching me the row, row, row your boat ashore stuff. Um, and he was teaching me rock stuff. And we had funny enough where we lived, we had an, uh, a house and right behind us was another doctor's house right on the other side of our fence. Uh-huh. And he was kind of like a hippie, cool kind of doctor. And he gave me my some of my first rock guitar lessons. So I would just walk over to his house and he would teach me House of the Rising Sun and stuff like that. Wow, how cool. That must have been. So that was probably the first song I performed live at a little recital at his house. But he was the coolest guy because he, he had the rock albums and he was like an older doctor. So that was pretty badass.
0: All right. Mm-hmm. Now, how about school? How about school? Did you take uh, music in school at all?
1: No. No man, I went to no. We we. I went to Catholic high school, man. Oh, There's got some,
0: it. Okay, so you weren't you know, in the, you weren't in choirs or anything like that, or you were No, they in the didn't have thing.
1: choir. They didn't have music in Catholic high school.
0: Right. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, your parents had to pay extra money so you could go to a separate school, <laughs> but they had portables out the back. It was okay. so certain.
0: You know? Okay. You wear a
1: uniform every day. No man, like
0: my school. I didn't know they, that about your background that you went to Catholic school. I did. That's 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 uh, interesting
1: yeah man. wrote well, my dad's Irish Catholic, you know all the okay. way. Al- altar boy, all that stuff. I did it you know I, I worked some okay. Funerals. So
0: there you are in your in your in your home learning guitar and you know standing in front of the mirror and pretending you're Richie Blackmore. Um, so how long did that go on for like a few years? And then did you, did you hook up with some other uh, guys your age and start, start, uh, something small, like, yeah. you know, at 14, 15, 16. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. In, in high school, like-minded guys, you find other guys. Oh, this guy plays drums. This guy plays bass. Yeah. And this guy, his mom will let us rehearse in the basement. So we started putting some bands together around 15, 16, Got it. 17, really terrible bands and getting
0: little gigs—they're <laughs> supposed to be terrible at that age. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you got to start somewhere, and you know, yeah, it's that noodling that you probably had to had to go through—that where you are just, you know, seeing which chords go well after each other and stuff, and and that you were probably listening to albums and uh, trying to Tons. cop cop riffs and cop you know chord changes and stuff like that. I would assume.
1: Tons. tons, And I I found the Deep Purple songs. I love them because a lot of their chord structures were in the box, you know, yeah, Um, they weren't that complicated. So I could go, you know, G, D, A kind of things, a lot of their songs. And then, and then the riffs weren't that hard. So I I just, uh, I just had, you know, the old needle on the, the vinyl and learned, learned everything that I could.
0: Cool. So, okay. So you're, you're now 15, 16 or so. And so when did, when did, johnny and some of the rest of the honeymoon suite guys come into your life what what age was that and how did you hook up did i think i heard rumor that johnny uh, found you or was it the other way around
1: um it was a mutual it was a mutual uh, agent thing but just to backtrack so after high school um
0: i ended up at Fanshawe college oh that's right that yeah i was going to actually talk about that yeah because that's, that's a place that I, I frequented. Yeah, to. You, you were there I'm older too. than you are, but I was there for the very first year, believe it or not, yeah. when it first started. And you followed. Yes, I did. And that's where I met uh, Dave Betts. Right. That's so interesting. And I heard uh, that, uh, I think I read somewhere actually, that you wrote New Girl Now at Fanshawe. I did. You did. Okay, so I can verify that's true. Okay.
1: Yeah, when it was
0: still a cold winter night. Got it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So you met Dave Betts there yeah, uh, at Fanshawe, and then um, you came out of Fanshawe back to your area, to St. Catharines, and met Johnny there. No?
1: When, when I was at... Fanshawe was right at the height of the the New Wave period, punk and New Wave. Yes. And I joined a band called Steve Blimke and the Reason.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Steve Blimke was this quirky New Wave singer who was also in school there. I remember him, yep. And they had an album out, and then I I auditioned, I got asked to join them, and I played on their second album, and we did some actually touring in Canada. And to me, you know, going across (laughs) Canada in a camper van opening. I think we did a tour with, remember, Martha and the Muffins. I do, we Absolutely. opened for them on a cross Canada oh, tour, wow. and it was rock star, man. Right? It was like I can't believe I'm doing this. It's great, and we opened for XTC at Massey Hall. Wow, that's big. Yeah, so a couple, you know, a couple of neat things there. Then that that the whole thing fizzled out, and I was and at that point I was living in Toronto. So after London, I got I got the hell out of there. And you know, if you're gonna make, you got to get up to a city. So if you're gonna stay in Canada, you go to you go to Toronto or Vancouver.
0: Uh, yeah. Agreed. Well, that's what I ended up doing as well. Uh, okay, that's cool. So you went to Fanshawe and I went to Fanshawe because there's all sorts of success stories from that uh, that place. So then um, you're in Toronto. Let's go back to your parents for a second. Were they supportive of what you were doing, going to Fanshawe and looking, at, looking to them like you're going to pursue a music career? Uh, were they all like, oh, yeah, that's fantastic, dairy. Good luck. Or were they kind of like, whoa, uh, <laughs> what are you doing? And I know you'll be I know you'll be back at our house living with us in a couple of years. So how cute? How cute is this?
1: Determined. And I never went back home. I, I made my own way because I was determined not to because my dad wasn't so happy about it. Why would he be, you know?
0: Well, he's a doctor, right? So I don't know if he was yeah. thinking you're going to follow. But
1: Right. But at least, at least he saw that I said, you know, I'll go to college. I really want to do this. So he was open to that. At least I'm doing something and not working at Burger King, you know?
0: Okay. And the fact that you had some success touring and all that must have at least sort of looked that looked like you, you were on your path of uh, this long journey that you've, you know, that you (laughs) undertook and you're still doing it.
1: Yeah. I don't think they understood a lot of it. My mom was much closer to, she, she was happy, I'm sure. But, um, my dad, eh, you know, okay. to be expected. Anyways, a couple of years in Toronto, kicking around with this band and that band, and one day I was, I was out of a gig once again, and I called up um, a guy named Steve Prendergrass, who you know well, yep. who was an agent at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, he had booked me in uh, Blimkey and some other bands, mm-hmm. and he was also booking this kid from Niagara Falls named Johnny D, who had just started this band called Honeymoon Suite, maybe six months before I met him. Okay. So I said, Steve, I'm out of a gig. Is there any bands looking for a guitar player? And that's when he put me, he says, John, John you know, this Honey, Honeyman Sweet guy, Johnny D. his guitar player just quit. So I'll, if you want to go meet him and audition for the band. So that's when I first met Johnny D. And it was actually in Toronto, even though he'd grown up in Niagara Falls. We both grew up in the same area. And uh, we never met um, when we both lived down there. He was in a band called Lennox. And I would go out and see his his band play, but I never met him. So we kind of played in different bands in the area, but we never connected till we were um, in Toronto.
0: Okay, so that's the that's the storyline there. So yes, um, I actually met Steve Prendergast. I think it was in Con in uh, a music conference because uh, he was really uh, also trying to make connections like we all were at our age. And I think that's where I first met him. I think Steve uh, said, hey, Tom, you know, I've got this band, Honeymoon Sweet I'm working with, and uh, I think I talked them into working with uh, me because I had a studio in my house, in my parents' house. I think that's how it started, because my parents were supporting what I was doing, and I, I needed some gear, so I bought a, an 8-track, and um, I think that's how we got the New Girl Now thing started, which uh, I'm trying to think clearly now, because it's going back a long way, but there was a Q107 contest... And we recorded in my parents' basement. We did. Yeah, and I still remember running cables down from my laundry chute in the upstairs bedroom.
1: I remember it like a, you know, it was, it was pretty clear like it was yesterday because that was pretty exciting for us. Okay, so go ahead. I joined Honeymoon Suite with Johnny D. We were a cover band for the first six months or so. Okay. And we were playing all the bars in Northern Ontario, Kappa and Sudbury and all that. And then, uh, Steve was our agent, but he was kind of wanted to transition into management. So he's working on, on our behalf, which was really cool at that time. So he had met, met you and we were, I think in Elliott Lake doing You do those six nighters, you know, Monday to Saturday. Yep. And then, uh, Steve said on Sunday, drive we would drive back to Toronto. I think we drove all night. We went right to your house and, uh, Went down to your basement. I remember you're running cables. You were upstairs, I think. That's right.
0: I was upstairs. You had
1: an eight track, and Steve, just go to Tom Termoose house when you guys get home and record some songs. We did.
0: Uh, it's getting clearer now. Yeah. Okay. Funny,
1: funny business and new girl. Now I think we're three of them, and uh, we cut the demo in your basement. That's and right. It, think you took it didn't you take it and mix it at phase
0: one or something i wonder if i did that that's that's interesting uh because that's i don't think i would have pulled life. off the, that kind of a mix that would have been uh you, you know would have went on q107 at, myself at, at the house
1: well the big thing for the Toronto bands then you know everybody's trying to get signed back yeah. in the day when we could, could get signed and sell records
0: yeah well you know obviously what happened is um the magic was captured because it's a great song. Mm-hmm. And um, fortunately for me um and for you bob roper you know loved the song and and when that when it won the contest he's had the insight to to go hey you know i don't know how many other songs he heard of you guys but i'm sure he's heard he heard quite a few and uh he took a chance and of course he took a chance on me as well thinking that you know let's keep this magic going here and of course for me it was a tremendous thrill so going into that first that first album uh you know it's a little bit fuzzy for me but I just remember basically it going fairly quickly because we didn't have a huge budget of course we had a modest budget in those days and I remember uh I think most of the songs went down live pretty well and uh for me the turning point was going to the farmyard in England you know we had an incredible engineer called Stephen Taylor and um I, re- I just remember working with Steve and some of the stuff that was going on there with uh, the snare becoming huge and the guitars and all that. I was kind of like, wow, uh, I think this is pretty special. I don't know what you, what you felt at that time, but I, I kind of had a gut feeling that this was the glue that uh, would would make this record successful. Of course, I didn't have any idea it would be th- that successful. Mm-hmm. But what, what were your thoughts of, the, of, of that whole uh, process?
1: Oh, it was... Super exciting! From the day that I got in the band when I heard Johnny sing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I knew I had something because up to that point I hadn't found the singer. Because in my opinion, you haven't. Most great bands have got to have that front man. You have to have that voice that's going to be great on radio, and Johnny had that, and that's so hard to find. And he was a good-looking young Italian kid. Yep. And uh, I had a few songs that he liked, and when he sang them, bang! You know, it just it just there that sound was there. So, um, we got signed and then, oh yeah, I went to phase one. And I I think it was like a $60,000 budget. Yeah, You're right. We cut it. We cut everything in about a week. I think it
0: was only two weeks or three, two or three. Yeah,
1: uh, two weeks. That's right. We did all the beds in a week and overdubs. And, and that was so exciting. So fun. But we, we were on a road band. We were playing six nighters for months and months. So for us to come in and play, we were so, you know, in
0: tune playing with each other. You were. It wasn't that hard, so. Well, you know what I also remember is because you guys were so well rehearsed from doing all those shows and Six Nighters, it went smoothly and it was recorded really live in the studio. Of course, there was a few overdubs, but this was not the, you know, this was the era of uh, recording, you know, opening the doors in the back to get a bigger drum sound, et cetera. It was that era of also trying to record the band and capture them live, which ended up actually being something that I continued to do the rest of my career as I loved recording bands live. Because if the band is rehearsed and the songs are great and the singer is great, your work becomes a lot easier. <laughs> I miss that. I, I miss that. I haven't done that in years. Oh, I know. I know. I miss it, too.
1: And I, I look forward to the day when we can go back in the studio old school and just set up as a band and, and cut, cut songs, because nothing is better than that, in my opinion, for a rock band.
0: Agreed. And you're right. There's very few bands doing that uh, today, which is a shame. Maybe they'll come back one day. We'll see.
1: So back to the mix, that was a really brilliant idea. I mean, Prendergrass, things didn't end so well later on. But in the beginning, he did a fantastic job with all of us in terms of just organizing our career and and making a lot of good moves, getting us signed. And it was just a lot of us, all of us as a team working together towards something because johnny d and i we wanted to get signed and we did get signed and we go okay now now what you know let's do this let's do that plus it was the beginning of much music and mtv that's right um radio loved the song we got signed to a major label which is amazing because that really kicked things into high gear we had videos like
0: crazy so it just shot up. Our timing was
1: was perfect. It
0: was well. I'm going to go a little deeper on on that later with MTV and stuff. But you're absolutely right, uh, Derry. It was the era of much music, which at least in Canada, you know, if you got on there in heavy rotation, I mean, you, you know, you could start touring the country and you'd have, you know, at least clubs filling up literally overnight, if not not, you know, even bigger crowds than that. So, um, and you know, it's 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 quite amazing that. Um, we actually, on that re- record, uh, we had four hits, four top-charting hits, which is
1: yeah incredible. Right. I know, four and singles. And that's teamwork,
0: oh. even from the label. The label really, really busted their balls, too, and worked their ass off on, on at radio, etc. It was a complete teamwork all the way around.
1: It was one after the other, and those those en- English mixes were just so tailor-made for the radio. They were. I, I'm not blowing my own horn, but I'm really proud of those songs. I just had the right songs at the right time. Absolutely. And the right voice and things just worked.
0: by the way I have to say this because you're right in front of me and I've never discussed this before and even though I was disappointed to not continue producing your next record I eventually understood the reasoning behind that and by the way I have zero zero hard feelings about it I completely you know I had a tremendous amount of respect for Bruce Fairburn who took over and he had had some tremendous success at that point with Loverboy in the US and uh, I was actually really sad when he passed away in his life you know that uh, that hit me hard too as a fellow producer so I just wanted to clear the air there that that I, you know, it took me a little while to sort of realize that, Hey, this is just business. And, you know, uh, Bruce was coming off a high and, you know, all good. So (laughs) I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Well, at that
1: point, after the first album, all of a sudden there was a lot of, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, all of a sudden, sure, Um, label people, management, and that, you know, all of a sudden you're into a much bigger money budget bracket. So and plus, we had Warners in the US, too. So the picture had gotten much bigger. And that's just that's just
0: that's the way it is. No, I understand that. And, and, you know, fortunately for me, the record did do well in the States. It didn't quite go gold. I don't know. It ended up at 300,000 or something. But, you know, at least halfway there. And the record and i think the song ended up in the top 40 or 50 and i'm sure their their goal the next one was to go you know higher maybe go top 10. yes you know and of course i just want to mention for me feel it again is still one of your my favorite my favorite songs of the the whole classic rock era on this on that album it's it's a yeah. fantastic song so great song it's a great Definitely. song for sure What do you tell me a little bit about Bruce Ferber and and a couple of things that he did on that record as a producer? I've never really asked you, so uh, for my own benefit, uh, you know, um, many years later, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what, what, what was um, was there something in particular that uh, that he did, or was it just a different approach, or were you still recording live in the studio as much, or not as much, or uh,
1: kind of all those things, Bruce? Well, Bruce, as you know, was started out as a musician. Yes. He was like a horn player in prison. Right, that's right. Yeah, Vancouver guy. So he came from being a songwriter and a musician. And any great producer, I think, should start out as a musician. I mean, it just makes sense to For me. For sure. But Bruce was all about the songs, and um, he would we would meet with him and play him new songs, and he would say, "I like this and that. This is this is half baked. Keep working on it." He would send keep sending us back. There's no point in going in mm-hmm. recording, you know, songs that are half baked. Sure. So. We finally uh, got got the group of songs together and ended up um, eventually at, at Little Mountain at, with Bob Rock as the engineer. I might add. So
0: well, ended up being one of the world's best.
1: Yeah, it, it, that's pretty crazy. Um, this, this is right before you know Bob, you know, took off
0: and the Bon Jovi twenty eight million. <laughs> yeah, exactly that's right so
1: again the timing was just right we went out to Vancouver for a couple of months and and uh, recorded pretty much everything there and Bob and I Bob's a guitar player as you know mm-hmm. he had all his amps and his guitars there and stuff and I didn't have that much stuff yet right so I get he plugged me in with a lot of his gear and that's where a lot of those great guitar sounds on that album because Bob knew the studio. He knew his gear, so that saved me a lot of time. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so um,
1: that was uh, that was where a lot of those great sounds uh, came from—the guitar sounds and, and the you know, you know, the drum room at Little Mountain. It's a legendary. So we cut uh, all, all did all the tracking there, and then again took it over to the farmyard in England, and Stephen Taylor mixed the second album as well.
0: Great. Well, obviously, it's a fantastic album as well. Um, what about your your experience then with the Racing After Midnight album, which was produced by Van Halen's producer Ted Templeman? Any 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 stories or two there you'd like to share? Because uh, oh, there's there's, <laughs> there's a lot of stories, but <laughs> you got time, the, I got time for one or two here.
1: No, no, I won't get into it. But unfortunately, unfortunately, um, I obviously wanted to I wanted to work with Bruce for the next album mm-hmm. because. Just we we got along really well as I got along well with you and um, that was a natural progression. But he just done Bon Jovi
0: uh-huh.
1: and you know we wanted him. We would have probably had to wait three years because um, he went through the roof. So the label says no, we can't wait. And um, we were with uh, Warner's in in L.A.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and um, it it just uh, Ted Teppelman was head of A&R there. And he'd heard of the band. He liked the band. Oh, he was a powerful
0: dude there. You're right. You're so, so it'd be hard to say no to him anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, he was he was a big big shot there. And and like me being a you know a huge Van Halen fan for sure to be able to even meet Ted Templeman, let alone work with him, um, would be amazing. So the first thing we did, he sent us a demo of of the Lethal Weapon song because um, they were looking for a band to record it.
0: Yeah. For the Mel Gibson film. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that was our first little uh, taste of working with Ted. We went down there and, and cut that track. Okay. And then it, long story short, it ended up we were that he agreed to produce the album because we had to get in and do another album. And, um, you know, who's going to turn down, you know, working with Ted Templeman? He's, Nobody in know, those
0: days. No, for he sure. He said he
1: came up to Toronto and rehearsed with us. He said, but we have to record in L.A. So, um, I mean, we're just on a roll. Yeah. And, uh, I was pretty happy, so that's how that happened.
0: That song ended up being also, uh, a big song, and, you know, I actually heard it the other day when you played it live at the acoustic show you did. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if you played in your live set that often, uh, The Lethal Weapon, uh, and Johnny killed it, I thought, acoustically, so. Yeah. And that was Michael Kamen, I think, too, who did the... That's
1: right. We didn't write it. It was just a a demo on a cassette. Yeah. And Johnny, Johnny hated it, but, um... Chad kind of like convinced him, just go in and try it.
0: I don't know if everybody out there is also aware that in that time era you had some very juicy song credits uh, in Miami Vice, which was uh, a huge show. I, I, everybody was watching it in those days, yeah. and uh, I think you had actually two or three or four songs in there. Uh, which that I mean, to this day they're in there when, when when, and those those movies are iconic. Or so. Yeah,
1: they used four songs in four different episodes.
0: That's fantastic. That's pretty crazy. Uh, I think that really actually helped your profile, uh, for sure, big time.
1: Well, how could it? how could it hurt? And we got a couple of movie placements. Again, when you're with the Warners in LA and you Warner Brothers Pictures, it's all in the same kind of company. So the deals are being done, you know, and the wheels are turning. And and our manager was down there just trying to make everything happen at once.
0: Well, let's also talk about uh, something else that's a big deal. You started in a Pepsi commercial. So tell us about that. Uh, I remember when that happened, too, and thinking, oh, my God, can it get any bigger than that?
1: <laughs> you know, when when you're on that kind of roll and you're in that and things are happening, uh, things just keep happening and stuff comes out of the blue. So I was in L.A. with Steve at one time doing something or recording in that, and he he got a call about a Pepsi commercial from somebody new down there. And they were shooting this, this rock Pepsi commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, and they needed a guitar player to play like the lead role in it. I will tell you that I didn't play the guitar on that. that is, that's not me playing. That's a kid named. Well, he was a kid then. His name is Vinnie Moore.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with him, sure.
1: Yeah. Total shredder. And I think he played with UFO for many years. Uh-huh. Vinnie and I are still friends. He's a wicked guitar player. Anyhow, he did the track. He went in the studio and, and cut the track ahead of the filming of the commercial. And um, they didn't use him. I don't know why, but they didn't. And mm-hmm. they were auditioning good-looking actors, and giving them like a tennis racket and telling them <laughs> okay. to play guitar. But they didn't look convincing because they're not guitar players. Right. So Steve just said, "Look, man, go down tomorrow, and uh, you know, just go there at three o'clock and go in and audition. They'll videotape you." Uh-huh. And I don't even know if they had a guitar. I might mean, have a tennis racket or something. <laughs> and uh, okay. I, they played the solo, and I just kind of air-guitared it and forgot about it. And then I got a call a couple of days later saying that you got the role they want to shoot you in the commercial.
0: Unbelievable.
1: And I'm like, okay, why not? You know, it can't hurt. Anything to uh, to promote the band and the brand, I'm down.
0: Well, you know what? C- can you remember how you felt in those days, Derry? I mean, let's let's look at this. You were all over MTV you have a Pepsi commercial, which is everywhere. You're on radio, on FM and AM. And I'm talking right across North America and to Europe as well and around the world to a certain extent. You're touring all over the place, opening for huge acts like like a cheap trick. And who, who else was there? Uh, Jethro Tal, Hart. I mean, there's probably a whole whack of them big names. Uh, and this was taking place mostly in the US, which for Canadian act was almost unheard of in those days. So How did you feel? Like, what do you remember? Like how you felt as a, like, uh, uh, did you really, (laughs) I mean, this is a dream come true for any kid on the planet. This is what you, what you dream about when you're 11 years old or 13 and you're, you're, you're there.
1: Pretty friggin' cool. I got to tell you. Again, it comes back to like how fast things happen. Six months earlier, we were playing six nighters in Kappa Skasing. Exactly. And, And then we're on a tour bus going through America Opening for Jethro Tull of all people, our first <laughs> one And then it was this tour and that tour. And uh, we we're having a blast, man. We were kids and yeah shit was happening. And it was like, you know, my dream was coming true. So, absolutely. Pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So let's move on then. So that's three albums there. So you ended up doing one more album, I think, for Warner, which was Monsters in the Bed. Any, any, what, what was that like? And that was, was that still U.S. involved or not? I don't remember.
1: I'm not sure. That was, that was at the end, uh, the end of the 80s. Okay. That album there was not a typical Honeymoon sweet album. And at that time, you know, Dave and Gary had departed the band and uh, we were taking another direction. And remember, this is the era of grunge looming on the horizon.
0: Okay. You're right. That was trouble brewing for, for bands like yours.
1: It was the death of our genre, of all mm-hmm. our bands, no matter how good you were. Yeah. So we did Monsters, and there were some great songs in there, but it wasn't like the first album or the second album. It didn't have those poppy hits. We wanted to do something a little more...
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, involved and we got session players and it's a great sounding album with with some deep songs but that's not what our
2: mm-hmm.
1: fan you know our initial fans like uh, I'm still stand behind it it's a great album it's just one of those albums that a band does where they kind of change the direction and the record company you know didn't want to support it they knew we we're at the end of our deal so that was kind of you know the end of
0: of things right well it's it's interesting that you're pointing out that grunge came in there because you're right it killed almost everybody out there and everybody had to go on a a hiatus and of course now many years later everybody's you know uh freaking out about all these great classic bands that you know where were they over the last 20 and 30 years and now now that's returned and of course most of the big arenas uh, the, the shows that are selling out are classic rock shows like your Def Leppards and, you know, Motley Cruz, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, it's come full circle, like usually uh, it happens in the music business. So
1: fortunately for us, it has, it's back. It's back. It's finished.
0: back. And it's going to be always back. Uh, you know, it might again go down a little bit, but it'll be back again.
1: Well, music, this business, business goes in cycles, as you know. It does. Grunge, you know, I guess it had to happen because... At one point, at the end of the 80s, it got really bad. The L.A. hair metal bands, much as they were great bands, there were some awful bands
0: the hair bands we won't mention names here but uh i agree with you 100 everybody with long hair that could barely play they could play three chords somehow was getting signed as long as they looked yeah
1: good. just everybody was jumping on that bandwagon and, and no songs me,
0: all, to speak of i'm
1: all about songs <laughs> and you can have all the hair you want but if you don't have the the great songs then you're it's crap to me so it, in a way it, it flushed out all, a lot of the bands that that were oh uh, it's just, just terrible stuff. So then grunge came along.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's let's move on. Now, now you become an indie band. So how was that for the morale of you and Johnny and everybody? How did you feel like you're going into the indie world? How was that as a, as a feeling?
1: It's awful. It's awful losing your record deal. But we weren't the only ones. It was happening to everybody. And man, those were some tough years. The the '90s for especially for Johnny and I. I mean, at one point it came down to just me and him.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And we didn't one year, we didn't play for a whole year. We played like one show in the whole year. We never like broke up the band. We always worked and write, wrote songs and did gigs and held our, you know, held our heads high Yeah, because we had this great catalog uh, of music. And I'm like, what the hell happened? Um, But it's still getting played on the radio. So, what else you, you know, in this business, that's the way it goes. You stick it out. What else am I going to do? You, you, you tough it out because I got into this for the long run and I don't know how I made it through, but I did through most of the nineties. Fortunately, I was the songwriter. So I had a bit of, you know, income coming in from that to, mm-hmm. to get me through. Sure. And, um, but it was still tough, really tough. And then
0: we did a couple of albums through the 90s, like independent albums. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you did uh, Lemon Tongue and Dreamland, and I think you had a live album. So talk, talk to me a little bit about those albums.
1: Well, we pushed forward. I don't roll over and, and blame everybody and, and cry and die about it. You know, it's just, OK, this is kind of shitty, but I'm going to keep writing songs. And Johnny wants to keep this going. So let's keep making music. And I think that's the lifeblood of any band. Is to keep recording your music and putting it out there. Even you're gonna, even if you have a small core group of fans, that's what
0: you should do. Well, let me let me let me throw a big compliment your way. I mean, I think a lot of bands did actually fold at that time period. They couldn't uh, weather this storm, which, you know, nobody knew how long it would last. The, the grunge movement. But to your credit, you you must have just looked at each other and go, you know, what else are we gonna do? We've got some great songs in our catalog. Uh, let's keep flying forward. Make the best records we can on an independent budget, which you did, and um, that that's going to uh, be a good place for me to come back in here because after your couple of albums, I entered back in the picture, and I don't know how many years, you know, had gone by, but I came back for Clifton Hill, which yeah, uh, for me was a return to some of your basics, and uh, I think the songs still stand up really well today, as all your material does, because it's it's always super melodic and. I want to put in uh, another personal plug here for Johnny as I honestly think he's one of the best singers on the planet. I saw him the other day, and he said, "Well, you know, geez, I'm nervous. I I bumped into Lou Graham on an airplane or something, and kind of like, oh, Johnny, I'm nervous when I'm standing beside you. He said, never mind. I'm a, I'm more of a fan of you than Lou Graham. So, I don't know. I think he's he's so humble. I I really appreciate. It. He doesn't realize maybe how good he is or great he is. You know, he's got to be one of the best out there. And you know, before before I forget, it, I'd like to make a note here that the the Clifton Hill album was recently remixed by. Thiago Lima at Iguana Studios. And it sounds awesome. And, uh, you can find it online for purchase actually at rockpapermerch.com. So a little shameful plug there for the album. Um, but you know, me and you got back together again and then, um, I became your manager, which, um, was an interesting, uh, you know, something different for me. And, uh, uh, I don't remember how many years I did it no, to be honest was it what would what, what it feel like uh, four or five six years I was yeah, there with you guys hanging out and touring and stuff manager and agent well I was doing some of that too that's true
1: look man you know we're just Johnny and I were you know we're old school we forge ahead we're we believe in in just work you know working and not Not rolling over. It's like something comes up and you're like, okay, this sucks, but let's let's do this now and let's do that. What else are we going to do? So you came into the picture and we had a great relationship for a few years, and you you got us, you were you know doing some booking, got us some some shows.
0: Did a record. Well, you know what I remember? Uh, I'll tell you what my highlights were there. If, uh, I know we did a tour with Glass Tiger out west. Oh, yeah. And I actually remember sitting in the bus with, uh, with Alan Frew and uh, going, this is really fun. And, you know, you got, it was a really good tour uh, out west. And uh, I think you guys, again, you you always seem to have that loyal fan base. And that's something that I noticed. And that's just been there, and if anything, now it's been increasing because, of course, a lot of the parents are bringing their kids out. Yeah, And I've really seen that as well. I already started seeing some of that earlier, you know, but, but now it's come full circle where families are coming out to see you guys, which is pretty pretty amazing if you think of it. The catalog is,
1: has been amazing. It's, it's sustained us, and like through the 90s where John and I are like, what You know, the 80s was so great, but it was the music that did it, and you're right. Even through all that airplay, we're getting airplay. Then, 40 years later, we're getting airplay. Not a lot of bands can say that, and I don't take that for granted for one second, because I started out to be a songwriter, and to me, that that's the most wonderful thing, when they are playing my song 40 years later. Absolutely. And new kids are discovering, and, and that makes fans, and the fans... Uh, keep us. That's why we're still here. Because we'll go out, you know, I'm going to a festival in Newfoundland tomorrow and big festivals, fairs and festival. I can't believe that this is, well, I can believe it. I think we we've worked for it, but it's, it's a crazy business and I'm pretty happy about it. So I'm going to, you know, I get still get to do this.
0: Well, Derry it's it's also because you've had not one or two Great songs. You've had i a, a, well, I'm going to try to say at least a, is it a dozen great songs on the radio? Like it's got to be up there at a dozen or more. Like that's yeah. a, that's a remarkable achievement with you know individual songs that have done that well, and that's why the people that are coming out because it's not one or two songs. Cause that that's really, you know, th- that's in the flock of eagles territory, whatever, where I can remember one song or whoever, you know, yeah. one or two songs, but you have a very, very deep catalog with numerous hits on the, on the early albums. And that's, that's, that's a remarkable achievement. So there you go.
1: Well, thank you. That's because I, I every song that, you know, I write, I want it to be a hit single, of course it's not
0: but well they, they almost be about the, that's almost yeah. happened
1: <laughs> if you're a band and you have one or two monster hits and then your other four albums don't have anything i don't think it'll sustain you that long but <clears throat> like brian adams is a perfect example you go see that guy you know he can get up there for two hours and every song is a hit
0: i just did and that's exactly what happened every song was a hit
1: I so admire that guy. I mean, he's like that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, lover boy, same thing. You yep. know, we're talking about Canadian acts. To me, that's give the people the songs that they want and every make every one. We're very lucky. We can go and play like a ninety minute show and every you know, every song is pretty great.
0: Yep. Well, Derry, I'm going to go to one last thing about when I was working with you guys as a manager. And this is, this is the maybe the biggest highlight of that time period when I was managing. And you're going to probably remember the show. It was a massive festival in Quebec City. I think it was called Festival d'été or something. And when you guys came on and I was on stage with you guys, I think my wife was with me. And it was just an incredible mass of people spread over out over this huge field. And I'm told there was about 50,000 people there. I couldn't see. like It looked like Woodstock to me. And you know what? Tons and tons of people could be singing every word of most of your songs, including the ones I had produced. And I actually remember my tears well, uh, well, you know, welling up in my eyes going, you know what? It doesn't really get any better than that. You know, I'm there with you guys. You guys, uh, you know, everybody recognizes the songs. Everybody was thrilled to see you that's a moment that I, I don't think I'll ever forget.
1: Well, great. I'm glad you were there. Cause now you know how, kind of how I feel. I never get, you know, new girl now, whatever, burning in love. I'm not going to get tired of playing those, those those songs have been good to me. And um, why should I, when you see that's the whole point of why we do this, isn't it? Like a songwriters to go, cause I would go see bands when I was a kid and they would play their songs and all the audience would be singing and I'd get chills and I go, man, if I could do that someday.
0: Yes, and of course these are, are songs that uh, were part of these the, the people's lives when they were growing up, and and you know they love going back and having those those memories of of those times when they're, you know may, maybe were were you know a couple was meeting each other or whatever, or that you know some of these songs even help people get through tough times. You know you put on great. Uh, up-tempo music and your tempo your your music is also uplifting it's not it's not downcast or anything you, you you know honeymoon suite if you turn that up loud in a in a car if you're not feeling that great it's going to make you feel damn damn good it's that kind of music
1: yeah well that's the kind of music i like that's for you know, that's why i like van halen
0: that's right exactly crank it up in the car
1: it just makes me happy everything about it it's a party and it's that's right whereas grunge kind of
0: too way too down and depressing i didn't i didn't want to go yeah there's moments that i like but most i'm going to say 90% of it kind of went over my head too about 90% of it yeah i appreciate you know maybe norvan and a few others but you know yeah
1: great great bands great songs just not my my genre i was already down enough i didn't need to, <laughs> i didn't need to get suicidal listening to that
0: that's right i agree 100% okay so let's go current now and this is i love i love uh, what we're going to talk about here this is really a major achievement for you and this is having your own signature guitar and i've done my research on this and so the official name is the Godin dairy Grand signature tread one yeah correct tr1 tr1 okay so take it away and tell us about this collaboration and how it happened with Godin.
1: Over the years, even back in the in the day, um, we had kind of worked, Johnny and I had kind of kept in touch with Godin. The, the reps would come out and bring us acoustics and guitars here and there. When we would play in Montreal, they would always come out and, and bring us guitar here and there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But what happened there was the guy that did the guitar with me, his name's Mario Bifarelli. He's the uh, he's the rep there that, that made this whole thing happen. He was at the NAMM show in California a few years ago. With, and with the Godan people, and he was a good friend of a guy named Mike Crumpus, who's producing our new album. Okay, Mike yep. is a, a guy from Toronto. He's a producer, a guitar player, whatever. And we were working with Mike in Nashville on this new album. <clears throat> so him and Mike, uh, they just got to talking, and then and then um, Mike said to Mario, "Hey, I'm I'm we're doing the new honeymoon suite album with with these guys in Nashville." And Mario's like, oh, I love I love Derry's playing and I, I love that tread guitar. I mean, I've always been a fan of his. And Mike's, I think Mike said, Well, you want you to do a custom model on that or something. And oh. I think that's where the seeds of it came from. And then Mario called me a couple of weeks later. He goes, You know, Derry, I talked to my bosses and we want to maybe think about doing a signature model on you. And I'm like, damn.
0: Damn, you must have you must have your jaw must have dropped. Like, wow, that's a-
1: I, I didn't, wasn't ever pursuing that, but I always thought that would be really cool because I saw it other guitar players with their signature models. And I'm like, I want one too, you know,
0: but, <laughs> but seriously. It, it, <laughs> well, that's gotta be the ultimate uh, really, or one of the ultimates besides having your, your, you know, top 10 hits. So that's gotta be like pretty damn close to.
1: Yeah. So it was the ultimate compliment to me. Um, and I'm like, wow, you guys really want to do that. So I, I just went with it and got in meetings with Mario and it was a long process getting that done. How it,
0: long did it take? A couple, couple of years?
1: couple of years because it was right during COVID uh-huh. and, and everything shut down and supply chains were so slow in getting parts. So it took a long time for us to kind of bring it to fruition because they had to do some prototypes and but it was so cool to go back and forth uh, with my specs. I would go to the factory and bring my other guitar there and they would measure it and photo it.
0: So I don't even know how you get started on something like that there. Like what's the what's the process in your brain about how to come up with something you know, different and unique that represents your personality? Like how do you even, like, would you just compare it to other guitars and go, okay, I'm going to combine a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Exactly. So it goes back to the Racing After Midnight
1: album, which has the first tread guitar on the back of it, uh-huh. which was actually a Kramer. And but the neck got broken on tour, so Godan sent me a neck and I put a Godan neck on a Kramer body. Oh. And that's the, that's the t- tread, that's the original tread that you see that I played for so many years. Okay, so that's what Mario was he thought that was a Godan.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: So I took that guitar and it was a combination of using their body and their neck and my specs and for pickups and stuff. We kind of worked with their stuff and and my suggestions and um their their guitar that they sent me was very close to the one that i was playing in terms of the neck and the body okay so that's how it started we use this neck this body these are the pickups i want the, the whammy bar all that blah 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 and they they would put a prototype together and they
0: send me this piece of wood you know and how important was the wood because w- the wood's got to be super important is that
1: well the finish comes later it's getting the guitar it was really fun to get you know these the ups truck would pull up and here comes another prototype no we, I, know.
0: I can't wait to plug this in yeah it's mine it's got my name yeah. on it <laughs> i love i love when a guitar comes to my door oh yeah
1: and i would play with it and then mario would go i'd go back and forth i said mario this is great can you change this and long story short they finally got it right i I think the biggest challenge for them was getting the, tr- the tire tread uh, right on the body. Okay. Because originally, the original guitar was a tire was an actual tire out of a rental car that we had in L.A. Really? We took the the donut tire, you know, spare. Yeah. And we let the air out of it and put yellow paint on it, <laughs> and we just rolled it across <laughs> across the body.
0: That's super cool, man! Wow.
1: Yeah, that's and it actually worked. But of course you can't do that these days. And they had to do like a silkscreen
0: yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, uh, after a couple of attempts at models, we finally got the, the right, the nice yellow on the, on the black and the tread and it's the finished, the finished product is, is beautiful. I have like three of them.
0: So how many, how many times did a truck show up at your house <laughs> with all these back and forth?
1: Three or four times, you know, go they're an amazing company. Yeah. And, uh, they would just, you know, dairy, whatever you need. To, we're gonna send this to you and check it out. Because I took it very seriously too, because it's it's not a cheap guitar and they're investing quite a bit of money into it. For sure. And it ended up being kind of a pricey guitar. And they were gonna do a run of a hundred of them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what? And I said, Wow, man. Um, but that's what they wanted to do. So it's it's now been out there for a while and it's doing really well. I think we've sold upwards of 80 of the guitars. Great. Fantastic. And uh, to me, I'm blown away that I sold 10 of them, you know, but
0: a lot of fans have bought them in, in the States
1: and in Europe and a lot of Canadian sales. So I'm
0: sure they're going to continue to sell. So wh- where are they being sold? Are they all uh, music stores across the country?
1: Yeah, they're they're in, you know, your long McQuaids and your Cosmo and their own sweet, sweet water in the States, you know, all those places, a couple of distributors in Europe. So yeah, so if you look, you you can find it. But I'm just—it's a it, amazing compliment, and I, I I love it. But it's also a beautiful guitar, right? It isn't like I didn't do it just to say here's a tread guitar. It's a dairy grain guitar. I said I don't want to do this. I don't want you to build a cheap guitar. I want I want it high end.
0: Yeah. High end. H- hence, the price reflects that the, all the time and effort that went into it. I
1: don't uh, want you to build a $500 guitar because it'll play like a $500 mm-hmm. guitar. I don't want a cheap, you know, Korean model. It's got to be something that I would play on stage.
0: And it is. Well, all I can say is congrats on, on this uh, um major achievement in your life because uh, again going back to when you're 11 or 13 if you could ever imagine that you know 40 50 years later you would be standing there you know holding your own guitar that a major company has put put money and effort behind yeah that's that's a, a major achievement for you so
1: yeah it's been a lot of fun and they send me out to do guitar clinics now which I've always wanted to do across the country yeah and this is another way of This all ties into Honeymoon Suite, engaging with the fans. So I'm lucky enough that I go do these guitar clinics at the music stores, and I play the guitar. And we get a nice little crowd there, and there's some guitar players there, but there's our our fans are there too, and asking me questions about how did you do the riff in New Girl Now, and and yeah, you know what's the lead to Burning in Love, and it's a it's a lot of fun the the one on one with the fans. We've got the the best fans.
0: I'm sure it's going to be a constant seller. Like over time, I just think you know more and more people are going to you know go wait a second. I want to have one one of those in my house, and I want to be able to to say i I, it's got theory's name on it i was a fan of the band for life you know yeah yeah, to be honest if i played guitar i'd buy buy one off you right now but i'm a keyboard player
1: so far (laughs) i've got not no negative feedback all the all the players i mean some good players too are raving about it they they really like it yep because i'm pretty critical too
0: for sure okay well that's 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 great that's um really big news in your life that uh I'm sure that every day you get up, you go, wow, this is uh, this is pretty amazing. So much time has passed, but still fantastic things are happening like that. Let's move on to some live concerts. So you've now been performing for about 40 years, roughly, give or take, which again is uh, in my books, a uh, huge accomplishment. So what keeps you motivated these days, dear, uh, is the traveling can't be that much fun waiting in airports and stuff. Is it? Is it simply what, you, what we've talked about already, uh, already, that when you see people's face light up when you come on stage and they, they start singing the first song, that you just go, wait a second, I got to pinch myself. Who wouldn't want to be doing this?
1: Yeah, who wouldn't want to be me, as Exactly. Say.
0: Exactly. So, never mind, screw all the traveling, how bad that is and all that crap, yeah. which I'm sure isn't fun.
1: Well, you know what they say, like in this business i get I get paid for my travel, right. That's what they pay for is all the shitty traveling in the hotels and the food. The ninety minutes on stage is is playing that's why they call it playing, you know that's like the fun the fun time. It's not always fun, but that's the culmination of of the whole day or two days it takes to get where you are yeah, so for sure. that's that's my job, and uh that's I don't do anything else. And that's just part of it, but at the end of it, the, what I get to do is is worth it.
0: Well, I certainly hope that they also make things easier for bands uh, and people to cross borders, because I've heard that the visas might ra- ra- uh, rise in cost as per the U.S. government wanting to do that. So I, I hope they I hope they 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 nix that, because uh, uh, you know there's some that's a shitty thing to do.
1: It's really shitty because I live in the states, as you know. I've been down here 20 years. I've got my green card. I've never had a problem going back, going back into Canada. Of course, I'm a Canadian citizen, Right. but I've never had a problem coming back to the States because I'm a permanent resident. and never had any problem. It's great. But
0: when we're starting to get a lot of uh, U.S. shows now with Honeymoon. Actually, I wanted to talk to you about that too, briefly. Maybe, maybe just mention that. How has that come about now?
1: Uh, good. Well, um, of course, living down here I don't, can't tell you how many times people come up to me here and there and like, how come you guys don't play in Chicago? How come you don't play in Dallas? Or, And I'm like, just like,
0: I don't know. Oh, I want to, but yeah, I need a right, the right
1: agent. I want to. It's, it's so hard because all the bands of our genre are back out there they again, are. you know, Night Rangers and and mario and
0: sticks that they're so that there could be some great packaged packaged uh bands uh, going out there together the three or four yeah
1: all that stuff is back and it's doing business and those bands are working year-round but it was a long uphill struggle but i mean i managed to finally uh connect with a, a, a u.s booking agency great. uh that handles the our genre of music and i've got a kind of a long relationship with them and they finally uh Started to get some interest and booked us like probably four or five shows this summer, which is amazing. Wonderful. It's a ma- it's a matter of getting your profile up because we've been away for so long. But we went out and we did a few of these monsters of rock cruises and 80s things, mm-hmm. and we made a bit of noise and people take notice and promoters are there and people are asking for the band. So it's kind of like building back up, which
0: I couldn't be happier, but the downside of that is these damn visas that I have to do. Well, that's why I brought it up, because when I saw that, I was shocked that they're making life even harder for musicians who are already struggling. You know, we know the costs have also gone up uh, after COVID. Uh, there's actually bands also canceling tours, never mind, because of all these rising costs. So that, that's a pain in the ass to pay an extra, you know, amount of money for a visa.
1: Oh, and I get, you know, I do all that from down here. And of course it, it's expensive and you have to put them in three months ahead of the gig and it's such a process. But I'm determined, like I don't if we get when we get that P two, I'm really happy and I'll I'll do that to come down here and play because I love playing in the US. Yeah. To the American audiences. You know, I love Canada too, but I wanna I wanna break in down here again a lot more. But um I'll tell you, it's it's a it's a real pain. Yeah. But the, I, I should mention something too. You know, can't understand because I just did a this tour with my daughter Leah. This U.S. tour. This is the first time because her her band is American. So um, I was we came up to Canada. This is the first time I've crossed into Canada with an American band, me being a part of it. Mm-hmm. And you go to the border and you have, you don't have to do anything. You just hand them a piece of paper, and they say, okay, go go play your gig. It's that no easy. Reason. Yeah, to to come into Canada.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm like, God damn. So (laughs) it's not
0: fair. That's not fair. No, I agree. Um, Yeah, so back to your daughter. I mean, she finished in the top three on American Idol, and you also got to perform on the show. Uh, And was it a Carrie Perry was there too? You did her song or something, or she was on stage, or how did that? She was. Tell tell everybody about that a little bit. Tell, Tell us about the success she's having. Well, the show, well, the show just kind of, changed changed her life changed our lives it's her new girl now in a sense where, where she yeah. needed to start you know
1: in a huge way it took her from like an, an unknown local singer
0: mm-hmm.
1: to you know put her on a national stage and her fan base just shot through the roof and her popularity so now she's in a different place mm-hmm. and uh we've still got a lot of work to do because she doesn't have the record deal or anything like that and it's 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 a tough business and we are working with that girl every day just trying to get her career going forward but she's, in, she's been put, put up to such a higher platform now it's kind of saved her probably good 4 or 5 years of slugging it out trying to get to that level. Absolutely. Now she's somewhat known but we've got a long way to go but she's a wonderful talent and we'll, we'll see where that goes. But the the show was just an amazing experience for her cuz she didn't really you know, take it seriously. She's like, if I get booted off the first week, that's fine. I'm glad I I did it. Mm -hmm. But she went all the way to the end. And then they asked me to, to play because the story behind that song was, was the Katy Perry song firework. Okay. And I I used to do things around with Leah in town. I used to play with her when she's younger and we do local talent contests. And one of the songs she did was firework where I played with her and she won like a local singing contest with that song. Mm. So American Idol found that footage and decided, well, how v- this would be really cool in the finale if, if Leah came out and sang Firework with Katy Perry. And uh, her, her dad could play, too, because I'm in the original video. So they, they kind of sequenced the old video into the new one. And there we are on stage, me and Leah and, and Katy Perry. Uh, how,
0: how special can that be for you for you how and your cool daughter being on I stage know. in front of millions? I know. I mean.
1: It's like, no, OK.
2: <laughs> sure. <laughs>
0: The gods are smiling down on you again after the guitar we just talked about. Now your daughter is having success.
1: Yes, and I got a nice I got a nice big hug from her.
0: <laughs> You're on a roll here, my friend. <laughs> well, it's just
1: like I, you know, sometimes it's like I can't believe this is happening, but that's the music business, you know. Yeah. It was fun.
0: That's outstanding. Okay, you know what? I'm going to put you on the spot here now. This is where we we, we have a little bit of fun at the end. I I actually asked my um, guests, a little bit of uh, questions about. uh First of all, we're, we're going to go to three guitarists, and when you hear their name, just tell me what comes into your head. Richie Blackmore, genius. Back to smoke on the water. That's why you started. That that's how you got yeah, started. Yeah, but
1: it's it's far deeper than that. He managed to take rock blues, rock guitar, heavy blues, yep. like seventies rock guitar, mix it with you know kind of classical, Paganini type you know, influences. And the, what came out was just, uh, you know, he's, he's very deep He's is, uh, well of, uh, you know, he can play rock, but he's uh, just, um, a, an idol of mine.
0: And what a shame that he, that he, that he is, I, I don't know, he didn't quite leave the business, but he, he, so he left deep purple. And then he started doing some of his solo albums. And then I haven't heard from him much in the last 20 years. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think Richie just does whatever he wants to do okay. and he, he doesn't care. Right. That's just the way he is. And, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. But I've never met him and a uh, great player. Eddie Van Halen. Well, what can you say about Eddie from the first note that I heard? I'm like, what is this? Like every other guitar player. Yeah. But it's not only his playing, it's it's the whole band, it's it's that it, he's a songwriter. Mhm. And uh, he's a great performer. He's an all-round, he's not just a, I mean, there's a lot of sh- shred guitar players out there that can play faster and cleaner than Eddie, but they don't have that feel and that humor in the playing and that playing from the gut Right. and just something about his riffs that were just so cool, so rhythmic, so funky, but so rock. And I just like the whole Van Halen thing it was just a party, but they had the songs to back it up.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, because I don't know if a lot of people know that, that you know, the, the jump riff on keyboard is, is Eddie. Yeah. He came up with that, and I don't think David Lee Roth wanted to to do the song, from what I remember reading. No, and that's an old song, too. Like that came out in
1: 1984, but I think they had that riff kicking around on the first album, uh, when
0: Eddie would play keyboards which shows me that he was very open-minded to you know like hey you know everybody knows i'm a great guitar player but this riff cannot be denied this is a, a cool keyboard riff and of course now it's become iconic
1: well he's a very deep musician he's a great keyboard player and he's he's very deep
0: carlos santana
1: again one of my heroes from back in the, the just before the deep purple days i had uh, an album called the yep and the santana Four.
0: i'm familiar with it
1: too yeah those were the such cool albums because he he played this SG, you know. And uh, again, I just thought all his playing was around the minor kind of pentatonic, mm-hmm. uh, and the music was very heavy Latin, tijano influenced. But it was so rhythmic. But he mixed that Latin with
0: rock, and it was just a, such a cool comedy. Which nobody was doing at that time. It was uh, unique. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I should say that what I love about great lead players is not how many notes they play it's what notes Got and it. the smart ones play the right notes and Santano's so melodic as was Eddie or David Gilmore to me when I go for solo it's it's melodic i hear it in my head first it's it's got to be something people can sing along to i don't care if you can play a million notes a second
0: well i've always, i've always noticed your solos are like uh, basically melodic themes if anything that you can remember that could actually be a chorus you know that you can sing you can sing or you can hum along to your guitar solos which is you know those are really really tough to come up with way harder than to be going up and down and play scales Try playing a melody that somebody remembers.
1: It's a it's another part of the song that's really important. You got great verses and chorus, and then you got the middle eight bars for a solo. It's like to me, it's another verse of the song.
0: Yep, correct.
1: And uh, make that interesting, and then you go to your choruses.
0: Uh, Okay, if I were to wave a magic wand, Derry, and be able to grant you a wish right now to change anything you want about the current music biz. What would you change? And it's your lucky day because I can wave it three different times. So you have three wishes. Uh, Take a few seconds if you want. I just want to get your opinion on, you know, things you could improve to make the business better for everybody.
1: Yeah. You know, I I wish we could sell records and cassettes and CDs again, like old school. Cut an album, put it out there and fans would buy your album. But unfortunately, uh, music is free basically
0: it's been devalued for sure
1: it's been devalued anybody can get it and that's kind of depressing but you you know it's it had to happen so turn the disadvantage into advantage and try and use that to your advantage and put out great music the business now is in touring and merchandising which fortunately we we can still do mm-hmm. and do well on touring and our merch does well that's that's important because you're not making money on record sales.
0: Well, let me ask you a question because I think I know where you're going. How about vinyl? Is that something you'd like to see become more uh, available and maybe the cost come down? Because it looks to me like vinyl is exploding out there. I just had a guy come on from an independent record store here where I live. And he said on Record Store Day, he had 1,500 people come in and buy a piece of vinyl and they were lined up at three in the morning in sleeping bags and l- lying on the street, you know, waiting to get in the store. So is that something that you would love to see increased as one of the wishes is more, more vinyl sales because it isn't a CD, but it's still something you can hold in your hand. And I think everybody's missing that. They want to look at the credits. They want to hold something in their hand when they listen to an album. How, how do you feel about that?
1: I feel great about that I can't believe it's back like it is I mean it seemed like a little bit of a fad a few years ago but it's really taken off
0: well that's why I mentioned that store uh uh, you know that story because I was blown away people sleeping outside of the street like 30 or 40 people waiting to get in the store
1: vinyl's the shit man like my my son is he's 25 and he's got vinyl all over his house he loves it because all his his new you know um alternative bands are putting out uh, putting out vinyl it's the new way and uh I just loved, I go over there, and I listen to his records. And after years of listening to MP3s on Spotify
0: and... and Oh, it sounds like crap.
1: I went over the other day, and I pulled out Synchronicity by the Police, Mm -hmm. and I put the vinyl on. And I heard stuff in there that I haven't heard in years, like the separation of the mix. That is such an amazing album. The space in there it does sound different in vinyl it sounds beautiful you and get warm. the depth.
0: yeah you get you depth get depth yeah depth. you hear the you nuances of the recording you're right
1: i am really happy about vinyl and by the way clifton hill is out on is coming out on vinyl
0: as you know yes as i mentioned earlier it's on uh, rockpapermerch.com yeah and uh it sounds great so and that's coming out shortly. Um, okay. So that's one of your wishes. How about a second one, uh, to improve the business? Would it be something to do maybe with, uh, getting in and out of the countries, make it easier? Would that be another one that you would go, Hey, if, if I could, if I could change something right now, it'd make it easier for musicians, just generally to, to go in in and out of different countries. Is that how important is that?
1: Well, mostly United States. I would change that because it's ridiculous the way it is now. It's expensive. And it's kind of the hoops you have to jump through just to go play one show. It's not it's not fair. And yeah. If, if you could change that, I mean, we're not
0: terrorists. I'll, I'll wave my wand right now. So that's a big one. Okay.
1: Yeah. That, <laughs> okay. That would, that would be wonderful. You know, when we go to Europe and stuff, no problem. It's just, you know, they, the promoter does a visa we're in. Um, but it seems like on the U S is just a lot of moving parts and that's it.
0: Okay. So what's your third and final wish? What would you would like to see change to make the business fantastic <laughs> for everybody? <laughs>
1: I don't know. I would, like, I said this earlier, I miss the days of going in with my band in the studio. Um, now we record, We, as you know, we send files. There's so much, especially during COVID. We guys did tracks and you send shit, send your files around, your bass player does his track, you send it back. Yep. And then you send it off to some guy to mix it. And you're not even in the room. No. i like, how, how can that right.
0: well listen this is uh i'm gonna call it a wrap this has been uh really fun for me and really special Derry. i really appreciate you uh doing this in the morning and uh take care and i'm gonna see you guys out there rocking hard somewhere this summer when you come close to my area and i'll drive a couple hours out of my way that's okay <laughs> yeah we'll be around okay thanks a lot dairy thanks tom great talking with you thank you
2: bye-bye bye